This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Scott Tobias here. My audio for the first 11 minutes or so of this episode is going to sound a little jankier than usual. There's an extremely complicated technical reason for this. It's also possible that I failed to press record on my end of the conversation. That's for you to decide. Our apologies for the mishap. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson. And Scott Tobias. Genevieve is once again not with us this week because she is engaged in an extended round of hand-to-hand combat. On our previous episode, we talked about the limey Steven Soderbergh's meditative revenge thriller from 1999. This week, we're going to bring in the movie that inspired that choice, Nobody, a new action movie starring Bob Odenkirk. And I'm still not used to that idea even after seeing the movie. And directed by Ilya Naishola. Also produced by David Leach, the stuntman turned director and or producer of such films as John Wick, Deadpool 2, and Atomic Blonde. And with those films, it shares a bare-knuckled intensity. In some ways, it feels like we're doing this pairing backwards. If anything, The Lion Me offers commentary on the sort of maybe not-so-reflective fantasies of violence and retribution in which nobody engages. But that just illustrates how long such stories have been with us. In fact, we had an abundance of options with which to pair nobody, considered such films as Death Wish and Straw Dogs, which might be a little closer in spirit, if darker in tone, than nobody's story of a middle-aged man who recovers his zest for life and his manhood by dishing out violence, as Odenkirk's Hutch Mansell does here when he first suppresses, then indulges in his finely honed combat skills after a home invasion. But both the Limey and Nobody fit under the broad umbrella of revenge stories. We'll draw those connections shortly after we talk about Nobody following a short break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's been a hell of a day. You can see that. For 12 years, I worked for some very dangerous people. Everybody get to the basement. What is happening? Don't call 911. I used to be what they call an auditor. The last guy anyone wants to see at their door. Because it meant you didn't have long to live. But I left it behind to start a family. Hey, hey! I might have uh, 
overcorrected. So, everybody, nobody, what do you think? Did you enjoy this film? Not particularly. <laughs> uh, uh, I it, it, it's empty calories for me. I mean, was it was it a watchable film? Did I did I you know fall asleep during it or it, it, it's fine? I mean, I, I it is a pretty straightforward you know revenge film of of a new school, right? Uh, you know, I mean, it may evoke some of the films we're talking about, of Straw Dog, the Death Witch of that tradition of revenge films, but. The level, skill level here is a little bit more Neeson-ish. Liam Neeson, an elevated Liam Neeson, maybe. You know, again, those are films I, I can often enjoy as well. But this one didn't do a lot for me because I, I didn't feel like it played that well on Bob Odenkirk's unlikely casting or really utilized his particular skills that we knew he had before. <laughs> and, and also... A film like this comes down to direction of how of showmanship of how much you can do with the camera, how much you can do with stunts and and action sequences, and this is just not on a level with the David Leach, Chad Stahelski movies, you know, the John Wicks and the in the Atomic Blondes. It's just a notch or two below that standard, and so what you end up with is kind of a forgettable thriller, in my opinion. What do you all think? I had fun with it, but my my big thought throughout it was like, boy, this would be a really enjoyable and and standoutish, like stylish movie in a world where John Wick doesn't exist. Mm. Too many of the elements. I mean, it ha- it's got to be a commentary on Taken and John Wick. Essentially, too many of the elements are too familiar from it. You know, from from the guy who has a terrifying past as a uh, contract killer and who has subsumed himself into a quiet life in the suburbs until somebody comes along and does a a very small thing to him. And that person who comes along is the 'er ne'er-do-well loser son of a a Russian gangster who doesn't like his son but feels obligated to avenge him and then feels obligated to throw more and more resources at the problem. A bunch of those details could easily have been changed into something that wouldn't just feel like John Wick redux. And John Wick is so stylish and so outlandish and creates so much of a a creative, unusual world for its contract killers that this movie can't help but feel both smaller in scale and just and less unique in scale. So, I mean, I enjoyed Odenkirk's performance. I, I thought he had fun with it and it's kind of, it's fun to watch him having fun. I enjoyed a lot of the like little playful bits about it, like that opening every day is a boring day montage. I enjoyed some of the kind of dark humor of it, but as Scott says, it's, it's empty calories and it's also empty calories where I just kept kind of saying like, it would have been so easy to change this up in a way that wouldn't have made it seem like a clone. It seems like the movie's one big idea that makes it stand out from all these other movies that we're talking about is that there's not really any sense that Odenkirk's character wants to to tone down the violence, that he there's a point where he wants it to end. He wants it to get bigger and bigger and messier and messier. And he does his best to escalate it far past where it needs to go, that seems like the movie's one big idea. And it's kind of a fun idea, but just, just, just there's so much to this movie that we've already seen before in different movies. I don't know. I had fun with it. I, 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 everything you're saying is correct. This is, this is a lesser John Wick in many ways. The, the whole vibe is very John Wick. The whole idea of a secret 
kind of a secret society existing beneath the skin of, of, of the, you know, old society we live in and on and on, you know, and I think it's, it's kind of a cheat in many ways. It, it really opens up as a Death Wish type film where Odenkirk is playing a character who rediscovers his masculinity through violence, which is a fairly, you know, a fairly vile uh, thing to, 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 to indulge in, but it can be a very powerful one as, as, as well as it, for a movie to play with. Uh, but it, the cheat, obviously, isn't even a spoiler, of course, is that he's always been this way. He's, he's a highly trained special operative, despite his meek exterior. But I don't know. He's, I think the novelty of, of seeing Odenkirk do this is really good uh is really effective but also i think he's actually just good as as an action star somehow and i, I did like a supporting cast that included you know uh, christopher lloyd rizza uh and michael ironside uh, the always welcome michael ironside i mean and you know i also also like the villain played by alexei serbryakov uh a, a russian uh actor who i think has a lot of fun as the very a very flamboyant uh bad guy so i don't know hit me in the right mood uh, i i i can recommend this movie movie i uh i quite enjoyed it for what it is it's like uh, a human godzilla versus kong right? sure. it's, just, it's just it's just two two people who, who are hyped up have a uh, kind of a battle i don't know i just i wish it had something to latch on to it just needs it doesn't need a lot I mean, like John Wick doesn't need a lot other than he's, you know he's mad about his dog. Yeah, exactly. No, that's that's enough. I mean, it's enough that he's lost what he has lost. And this one thing that he had to make up for what he's lost, his dog was taken from him as well. And then it's and then Keanu Reeves brings the the weight of his experience in, into things in, in that performance. I mean, there's something to latch on to, you know, on top of the superior style, which is you know, in, in Atomic Blonde is kind of the same way. You know the 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 ambiance of that movie, the soundtrack, the setting. Um, you know that gave it a richness in addition to the Charlize Theron's performance and and its focus on doing you know a handful of really distinct and awesome <laughs> action set pieces. And I just think you got to have it. You know, and I think that this is not quite at a level directorially to make pop as it is opposed to and. And I, I don't know. And I think making, I think the, the fact that he, it's kind of a bummer in a way that that it turns out that he's this awesome killer, right? I mean, it's a, it, that he, that the auditor is not this boring job he had <laughs> in the service, but but the last person that you want to see. Mm. You know, I, I almost would have preferred that straw dogs scenario of somebody whose masculinity had been tested and uh, who was acting out of that motivation i mean as as gross as that is in straw dogs it's much more emotionally compelling than somebody who is just who is just us to be you know another Liam neeson type or just another just a badass you know other than as somebody who's just kind of a normal guy I feel like there is a degree to which nobody is is meant as a goof. The fact that what sends him out on his his roaring rampage of revenge, I will say it again because I love that phrase, is his daughter's kitty bracelet. And then he discovers that, you know, the kitty bracelet was under a couch all along. That is openly a gag. And it feels like it's a gag playing on the the pathos of Keanu Reeves losing his puppy, the puppy that his dead wife gave him in John Wick. You know, there's there's a degree to which the whole puppy plot is about manipulating the audience and is about like the emotional vulnerability that he has about his his humanism making 
Odenkirk's motivation for getting started, some not only way pettier, but actually openly specious, is kind of a pretty good goof. So I, I kind of dig this movie's stabs at humor. You know, I, I kind of dig Christopher Lloyd's like manic old man. I kind of dig the scene in the bus, which just goes kind of deliberately comedically over the top. But I feel like if it's if that's what this movie is going for is a deliberately tongue in cheek riff on John Wick, it needed to be funnier. They need there needed to be more of those kind of touches and I, you you can't really have a, a funny I mean, I don't want this to be a, a scary movie style parody that's all about the the dumb one liners and, and visual reference jokes. But the thing with the kitty bracelet feels like it's deliberately subverting this kind of movie. Too much of this movie is just this kind of movie for it to be a, a full subversion. And I, I kind of wish it had gone harder on that. I mean, you know, you've got one of the great sketch comedy artists ever is your leading man so it's okay to go in that direction i mean odenkirk is somebody i think who has shown a lot of different looks and that's been the big surprise of better call saul of, of just how much emotional you know depth that his performance in that series has perhaps defying our expectation of what that series was going to be but it's okay to show flashes of that, especially in a film that isn't to be taken all that seriously. <laughs> I mean, like, this is not, this is a movie that is ultimately meant as kind of a punchy, violent entertainment and not, it isn't exploring any of the themes that are right there that it, for it to explore. We should probably mention it's written by Derek Kolstad, who is the creator of John Wick and has written all three John Wick movies. So I guess if anyone has a right to goof on on, on John Wick, it's Derek Kolstad. Man, that's a good gig. Once you got, <laughs> once you've written the first mm -hmm. one, you can just keep writing the ones that are you know similar. Well, but, but you know, to be fair, one of the crazy things about that franchise is that they just keep making the mythology more and more elaborate with each that is sequel. True. That, that uh, is true. So you know, it's not exactly like he's just repeating himself uh, with those movies. Yeah, uh, not a fan, man. That no? that first movie was just so ridiculously over the top cool, and the mystery of it was so cool. And digging deeper, yeah, I wrote a piece for the Dissolve once about uh, horror mm. sequels not being about horror. Because, you know, you can't take something that's uh, an eerie occult mystery and then explain the hell out of it and have it still be scary. And I kind of feel the same way about the mysterious cool of John Wick. I just don't think that delving over and over into an increasingly elaborate and not very sensical world makes much sense. Here, I feel like nobody's end is just openly begging for a sequel. Like, we can do this oh, again, yes. right? You're going to support yeah. us if we do this again, right? And uh, the, the answer to that is uh, probably not. I kind of feel like you, you shot your wad with the big reveal that this this nobody is a somebody. And then, you know, what's <laughs> wait, wait, maybe if they call the sequel somebody, I'll uh, mm. I'll turn up for it. I like the third uh, John Wick, which kind of fits into my uh, it's like um, hard target. I mean, if it's a movie, if it's a modern film involving people, you know, on horses at any point. <laughs> It's going to kind of win my favor. So uh, uh, I think that that one kind of justifies itself. But uh, it's hard to 
spin out a mythology around basically the same type of action of brutality but if it's done again with that much style it that makes enough of a difference for me to kind of put it over the top uh, even if it's never going to be as fresh as john wick was ah uh, they're all good this one's pretty good uh, I, I i'm never going to be the turn off your brain and enjoy the movie kind of guy but but uh, i was i was able to get to that point with with uh with this film so i don't know i i i won't overpraise it but uh but it worked it worked for me plus he rescues a kitty cat come on He's a, he's a big action hero who rescues a kitty cat and gives him to it. That is nice. That's a nice one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can often not be down with your uh, your your prequels, your framing stories, your start with the end of the story, but the slow paced opening sequence where he just keeps pulling things out of his jacket until he gets to a kitten. <laughs> yes. Very John Wick again in its way, you know, the end of John Wick, still just kind of hilarious. It's a movie that, that kind of Get you on its, you know, establishes what kind of movie it's going to be very early on. And, uh, I was, I was on board. Well, we can talk about it more in relation to the Limey after the break. Agent Mansell, FBI. <laughs> I'm yes. looking for old. What? Your ID is a badge. Expired by about 20 years. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that ain't you in the photo. So, who are you? I'm just a man who's looking for someone. Yeah, well, you probably shouldn't flash cheese like that around here, bro. There are three types of people who, as you say, flash cheese. People who don't know any better, people who are seeking to intimidate, and people like me who wish with every fiber of their being that someone would try to take it from them. Uh. Thank you for your service. You too, old timer. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I guess one thing we could start with is I think both. Uh, all right, it's been a while since I've seen both of them, but they are, <laughs> both have some 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 violence in them, right? Let's maybe we talk about the different approaches to violence here. Oh, I love it. That's the, that's what's so heartbreaking about nobody only being okay is because you know it's a lot. It's really violent, and I didn't have as much fun with it as I as I normally do. But I think it, it, creativity matters. I mean, it's not like The Limey is a super violent movie, but you remember the violence in it, particularly the, the, I mean, the warehouse scene, the way that whole thing is handled is so smart of him kind of invading this space from the back at first and then get then getting kind of beaten up and kicked out and <laughs> just coming, coming and blazing and having all of that action happen off screen it's so well handled the, the use of on-screen and off-screen violence it's so full of wit and clever staging and i think with nobody it's just about sequences and whether i can't think of it again you know i saw nobody it's been what six days now that we're recording this since i, I saw the movie and i can't really think of any big standout sequences other than, you know, the bus sequence, I guess, where, which is kind of interesting and in that he's, he's excited 
for the opportunity to unleash righteous violence in that in that moment, which is kind of an interesting character bit. But, so so uh, wait, you you don't remember the trap filled machinist uh, area and the camera like spinning around Christopher Lloyd and Bob Odenkirk and oh, the RZA all like back yeah. to back like blazing no, away okay, with guns. That, okay, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean but again their their approaches are, are are different. I mean violence is the point of stylized violence is the point of nobody. I mean that's why you watch the movie. That is why that is its reason for being, and I, and it's not reflective about violence and revenge in the least and uh and that mode is very different in the liming and, and it just reflects a kind of a difference in approaches and and, and values and and uh what each film is trying to get out of this particular subgenre i would say that one thing they do both have in common in approach is that in both cases it's necessary for the protagonist to take some licks to justify what he does later on when Wilson goes into the warehouse, they grab him and they beat him up and he doesn't do much about it, which I questioned in the first half. You know, he's he's got multiple guns on him. It seems like that entire situation could have been, I guess, handled uh, a lot more efficiently if it just gone in and pulled a gun on the uh, the supervisor and said, you know, I've got some questions and then got that card and walked out. But instead, he kind of makes a nuisance of himself until they start hitting him. And then he makes more of a nuisance of himself until they throw him out. And it's like he's building up a justification for going back in there and uh, and murdering them all. But there is sort of a sense that until they start hurting him, he doesn't really have a reason to start shooting. And in the same way, until the, the thugs on the bus start threatening the woman, Bob Odenkirk doesn't have a reason to to go to town on them. And then throughout that fight sequence, they keep getting him down. They keep hurting him. And so as the fight just gets more and more brutal and more and more messy, he has more and more of a justification. I think both of these films want their protagonists to get down and dirty into the physical mix and get hurt in order to justify their anger, in order to justify what they go on to do. They're not the kind of characters that stand above the violence, above the fray. They're not untouchable. They're not too cool to be hurt. They both just end up with a, a lot of, well, specifically facial wounds that are going to stand out in every subsequent scene. They both end up with scars to show for what they've been through. I do feel like the Limey is, while it's not averse to showing violence, it does have a more kind of extra layer of commentary on it. I, the way that's staged with all the violence off screen in the warehouse scene, the way the really satisfying, what ought, ought to be from Wilson's perspective, really satisfying scenes of just taking out Terry Valentine in his house turn out to be fantasies that he doesn't, doesn't act on. And then the, the actual... Violent, the attack on the house is, is chaotic and confusing and, and scary and not like, I'm not going to say it's unthrilling, but it's nothing like the, the stage thrills of, of something like Nobody or, or many other action films. You know, I think there's some conscious decisions being made that are kind of reflective of how other films would do it and going the opposite direction. I think there's also something to be said for the Limey's most casual murder, the heavyset man who's sent to mm. confront <laughs> Wilson yeah. out on that infinity pool, who he just headbutts and throws over the fence to his death. Uh -huh. There is a surprising quality to it all, like how quickly that escalates. The warehouse sequence escalates pretty slowly. The straight up murder of that guy is almost blink and you miss it. And it happens entirely in the background. 
almost qualifies as a gag in a movie that's not really about gags. Oh, I think it's a I think it's a solid laugh. And it's and again, it just shows kind of how you stage, you know, a scene matters so much in terms of the audience's response to it. So that matter of fact toss them off the cliff thing it's just you know because it's because the camera is where it is and and uh and we see it we see it but we don't hear it it's just it has a different it lands interestingly and that's directorial magic and it's a different kind of directorial magic than what is being attempted in nobody which which is much more like john wick which is like okay we have got a complex action sequence that we have to wow the audience with and we have to put together and that takes a lot of choreography and a lot of creativity in terms of the stunts in terms of sound there's a lot going on but it, but um sometimes the sometimes going the simple route can be effective too we should talk about nobody's most painful scene which is obviously when uh, Bob Odenkirk destroys an amazing record collection at the end. <laughs> uh, I, I was I was gasping. Uh, but the reason we do actually I do want to talk about is how both these films use music, and I, th- I think they with again as with all things, I think the Limey is a lot more thoughtful with it, and and there's layers of commentary there. But I think they both use it pretty effectively. I, nobody has a couple of scenes that, that has some counterintuitive music choices that that work well. And they also are kind of, you know, to tell you about who this character is, uh, which is a uh, middle-aged man with taste um, and, uh, and a slightly an error even older than his, uh, than his age. So, but we'll get into age a little bit more. Let's talk, let's talk about music. What do you think about the way both, films, uh, both these films use it? I think both of them are maybe a little on the nose. I mean, nobody's use of uh, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet singing I Gotta Be Me versus uh the the limey uh doing seeker oh, both of those both awesome, of those sequences are just basically uh like like straight up disney musical uh i am declaration songs mm. and they're both no they're they're both appropriate they're both funny they're both recognizable songs that give you a good vibe a good emotional uh, place to be but both of these movies have some really prominent musical choices that are basically just straight up jokes for the audience. I'll take that back. Maybe not jokes, straight up contracts, emotional contracts with the audience, straight up reaching for like recognition and nostalgia and a a known mood and a known piece of music. Like these are not unobtrusive soundtracks. I don't know. I get such a rush from the seeker as it's used in this movie. I, I, there's uh, such a great kind of, punch as much as it you know it of course underlines that character but i really uh, think it's a great choice and it, and it has a pretty high impact and but but i think when you look at like again i don't remember the soundtrack that well for nobody but i do remember something like what a wonderful world coming in at some point and it's like okay we're just going with kind of the ironic choice of of having this song that is at everyone's wedding including my own (laughs) underscoring you know a scene of violence and uh to me that's a little bit more obvious a choice how about the use of the impossible dream over bob odenkirk's slow motion destroying the obshack yeah see it's the same kind of deal right it's it's a gag i mean it's it's a joke but it's a joke that that mostly works for me i mean it it is almost like 
it is it is so heavy-handed with his irony that it becomes a, a joke in itself. Uh, I do think the the use of the music in um, in the Limey is much more effective, um, even if it, if it is Tasha says a little on the nose, like you know, putting the Holly song King Midas in reverse over the sort of this introductory sequence of, of Terry Valentine, mm-hmm. uh, where you it is a shorthand to establish who this character is, but boy, it works for me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, Keith, you you seem like it was just like this. The nobody though kind of hit you in the right moment, like a Friday night or something like that. It was exactly yeah. a Friday night. Actually, it was exactly like it was like after a, long a little week. bit. I was like thinking about a, a little bit of the old ultra violence. <laughs> Maybe standards get a little lower, uh, but yeah, no, no. My wife and I used to have watch and watch action movie every Friday uh, uh, for a while, and then we had a child, and all schedules got disrupted. But it was uh, we were we we worked our way through, you know, most of the uh, Luc Besson production oeuvre during that period. Uh, you know, your, your District B thirteens that was a, that was a highlight of, of that period. But there's there's some good stuff um, yeah. during the, to be found. No, I, I I can see it. I mean, it, this, you know, this fits I, that mold just fine. It does. You know? I mean, it does kind of check that box. I just wish it kind of, you know, was a. Little, it's more of like a two and a half star type of experience. Sure, I'm sure that's it's a little fine. Bit more. But, but I'll I'll take two and a half sometimes. I also feel like this is a movie, uh, maybe not quite to the degree of Ryan the Last Dragon, but it it uh, would benefit from seeing it with an audience, or maybe the audience would be you know, hooting and hollering uh, too enthusiastically, and that would be a problem too. But uh, it does feel, feel like the kind of, of film to be enjoyed with a crowd. One connection that I think we should talk about that, again, kind of gets at the differences between these two movies in terms of quality for me is the locations, right? I had mentioned before in our discussion of the Limey how distinct that Terry Valentine's house is this perched as it is over over a cliff in the fall. It's just it's so evocative, just as a place, it, the place in Big Sur. It all kind of gives you this sense of it's so California. It's so mm-hmm. you know it's so like the secrets of the Hollywood Hills and you know a certain certain type of entertainment guru. It just it it all feels I don't know. It all feels very interesting to me in a way that 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 I think nobody's almost purposefully generic that it, that it, that this is and i guess that's part of the the initial joke is that we have a guy who is just a work a day you know middle class guy with the wife and two kids and leads a fairly boring normal suburban life that is disrupted and we find that both the source of this disruption and then uh this character are different than we or uh, that we would have expected otherwise but to me it's like uh, the the level of investment in the location doesn't go beyond that in nobody it doesn't really it's not i i don't know where we are really and maybe I mean, that's the point yeah, it's very deliberate to make him an everyman and put him in an every city. The only place where that starts to get hanky is it's apparently in every city with like a thousand Russian gangsters. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the only indication that you might be somewhere in particular is that the the Metro card is very much a New York City Metro card, but there's nothing else. Oh, that right. suggests That's it. true. It's, yeah, but it, it was filmed in Winnipeg. Well, Los Angeles and Winnipeg, but I think all the exteriors were filmed. In Winnipeg, but it's so anonymous to the point where I, the first time we went to that Russian club, I thought that scene was actually set in Russia. It was only, <laughs> uh, it was only like in, when they connected the dots between the geography that I realized that it was actually just a Russian club in wherever this film is set. 
I for what it's worth with the limey, I feel like a lot of the quality of that first house of Terry Valentine's is that it, it literally appears to float above it all. Mm. That infinity pool that leads to nowhere and, and doesn't even have a fence on the end, as though he wants his uh minions to be thrown off the edge. <laughs> It's got a vaguely Zabriskie Point quality to it, that house, and it's mm-hmm. uh, it's positioned up in the hills. But it also just sort of feels like it's almost in another world from the rest of the city, from the rest of the world that he's uh, inhabiting. It's it's certainly a world away from that warehouse where people are doing dirty work that brings Terry Valentine money uh, that he he doesn't necessarily actually have to touch. It's certainly a world away from like the grimy office that the DE agent lives in or the grimy parking garage where our hero almost gets assassinated. You know, there are there are all of these kind of grungy locales. And then there's the rich man's house where when Wilson invades it, when he goes wandering, he doesn't have to open any doors. The whole place is just sort of one continuous, strange, curved space that he just kind of drifts through. And there are doors there, uh, but there are very few of them and they're all standing open. It does make him feel like a ghost, the way that house is set up. But it also just it feels like a rich person's house in a way that makes it alien uh, to any other experience in the movie, even to the Big Sur house, which seems a lot uh, darker and more compartmentalized and more claustrophobic and heavier in a way. Uh, And we don't spend very much time inside it. A lot of the action is on the outside. Yeah, I like that compare. I like the Zabriskie point comparison. Maybe the other one for me would be like body double. I mean, there's there's a house that you can't. It's just not going to survive. It's just kind of like, it's so distinct in such a kind of a, an L.A. weirdo place to build. You know, L.A. weirdo architecture that's been, that's been kind of built and, and is, is precarious in a way that feeds into the plot. So we, we uh, touched on this a little bit, but let's get a little bit deeper on both these films' attitude toward revenge. Limey, I think, has a nuance and, and complex approach to what it is which we've kind of gotten into but we should at least give nobody credit for the scene where uh hutch tracks down his home invaders and finds he cannot exact revenge on them because they are a struggling couple with a sick baby you know but much like the kitten there's there's no subtlety to the, to, to this film but there is the idea that that whatever harm he could exact on him on them would not be satisfying so he then needs to go out and find a target that makes sense to him that is justified a justified recipient of their violence so uh, there is a little bit of complexity to nobody or 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 am i crazy or is that just even make it even like more brainless to uh, kind of just throw a really good victim deserving of his uh violence in his way i don't think that it's brainless i think that it's again very conscious of the degree to which this is kind of making fun of uh, John Wick and a, a certain mm-hmm. kind of revenge movie. I, I think that that Odenkirk's reaction towards the opportunity for violence for simple black and white, unmitigated, these people are thugs and they deserve a beat down. They're unruly drunks and they're they're scaring people like i think his response is meant to be our response it's certainly our expected response is oh thank god uncomplicated violence fun violence you know violence against a poor couple 
that are nursing a sick baby is not fun. It's emotionally complicated. It makes us consider the degree to which uh, capitalism is a, a trap that you know holds some people down, which is not what people want in their rambunctious feel-good action movies. But you know, when you've you've got a bunch of uh, a bunch of loud, drunken jerks who seem like they're about to do violence on a woman just because she's there, you can feel good about that. You can just have fun with it. And I think his response is basically, "Oh, thank God, the movie has." entered the part where we don't need to think about whether this is justified or whether this is a good thing. We can just dive into it. I think also importantly, the mercy that he shows that couple also retroactively justifies his restraint in beating them, you know, and not beating them down during the home invasion of recognizing them as not potentially not any great threat of, of being pretty incompetent crooks people that he can that he doesn't ever necessarily have to reveal himself as this he doesn't have to react that strongly i mean you know i mean it all becomes kind of an act of misdirection and you know the, at the beginning we so we can kind of consider him to be ineffectual until he isn't but um but i think that you know the it, it, encountering that same pair again gives you the feeling that he knew earlier than that who they actually were like his instincts were were correct i feel like the part earlier in the movie where people keep questioning hutch's response is one of the more telling and interesting things about the movie and maybe one of the things it most has in common with the limey i think at the end of the limey uh wilson kind of asks himself is this justified is murdering this man because of what he accidentally did to my daughter, justified, given what I deliberately did to my daughter. And he comes away thinking that maybe violence isn't the answer, or maybe it's just that it isn't going to be satisfying for him in this moment. And in the same sort of way, Hutch, given the opportunity to stave in one of the robber's heads, holds back. And then just a series of people, who, uh, the, I, the, the cop, his next door neighbor, imply that he's less than a man because he didn't take immediate revenge. Like, of course, he's justified. They broke into his home. He would be justified in beating them to death with a, a golf club. That's just the prevailing attitude. And there's kind of a sneer that comes with the fact that he didn't. And I don't know that the film's divergence from there into I'm feeling emasculated, so I'm going to kill a billion people is healthy or smart or good. But I think the observation that people just assume that like, of course, if you have the, uh, if you're, if you're challenged, then you suddenly have a right to violence. And therefore it's wrong of you to not take the opportunity for violence. I think that's a very interesting and, and apt observation about America. So nobody, an interesting and apt observation about America. That's, uh, <laughs> that's what we're going to end with that. Yeah, um, yeah, for a 60 second sequence. <laughs> so both these films kind of draw on our histories with their leads. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the limey very consciously. So I mean, it, it's I, I I don't know that it was it wasn't necessarily written. I know it wasn't written with these actors in mind, but but it was cast very smartly. But you know, nobody brings our history with Bob Odenkirk to the screen. I mean, I've you know we've watched Odenkirk in comedy for over twenty years at this point. And this is, you know, far removed from the Odenkirk of Mr. Show in, in many ways. But that being said, there's connective tissue here. I mean, be between you know Mr. Show and Saul Goodman 
and this film, there's there's really few things that satisfy me watching Bob Odenkirk get really frustrated and mad about something. And like, mm-hmm. this, I think the film knows it. Like that opening sequence of him continually missing the garbage truck and, and, and other daily frustrations, it plays off that history in a really fun way. Yeah, I almost wish it did even even more because I mean, there's there's no reason for the film not to have as much fun as possible with somebody like Odenkirk in the lead. I mean, the, you know, he isn't his uh, unique set of skills or whatever it is that what, what's Neeson's line something like. Right, got a, a particular, particular he's got set a particular of set of skills, right? I mean, like he is not a steely killer type that's not bob odenkirk so as much as he can play somebody who, who has that ability he as an actor can bring you all kinds of different looks and can bring you a lot of comedy uh, too and i and i also i felt like the film didn't seize the advantage enough like it, it felt like there was, it was enough of a joke or a hook just to have odenkirk in that role at all period mm-hmm. uh and, the, and that um there wasn't it didn't take as, as much advantage. Maybe the fact that it was Bob Odenkirk allowed, you know, the the mild twist that we get in the beginning to play a little bit better to hit us a little bit harder. That 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 uh, this guy who we just assumed was, uh, you know, you know, an ineffectual number cruncher from in the service, in fact, is is uh, the great biggest badass on on earth. You know, I, I think maybe if you know if you cast that role differently, um, that little twist doesn't play. But uh, I think it could have gotten maybe a little more creative. But I was I was happy to see you're always happy to see somebody in a role that that you don't expect them to play. I mean, that, and, and uh, Odenkirk has been somebody who's been really good at doing that throughout his career. It seemed like people were were surprised when he turned up in Little Women. <laughs> I, I remember that. I remember I remember that appearance, kind of getting some chuckles from the audience so I, I don't know i don't know how people read bob odenkirk if they can just accept him as a character actor who can just kind of pop up in a movie like little women and just be okay with it but i like the idea in principle i think it's a very good idea to, to put bob odenkirk in a movie like this i just wish it had taken full advantage yeah he doesn't feel offsides here to me at all like the casting of bob odenkirk in this role does not surprise me after so many years of Saul, after so many years of seeing him play a fairly nuanced and complicated and in many ways serious, although in some ways a little over the top character. The little women role did surprise me. And looking at the difference between that and this, I think maybe the, the question is sincerity. It's a little harder for me to buy him as a wholly sincere dramatic character. But I don't think he is playing a wholly sincere dramatic character in in Nobody. I think he's playing a much more physical character than he's maybe used to. He brings that across fine or he's the stunt doubling is very good, What whatever. But I, I think he's playing this role very tongue in cheek and very over the top in a way that is not is he, like overt comedy, but is certainly like tongue in cheek irony. And it, it fits just fine with the Bob Odenkirk I know. To be fair, I, there a lot of stunt work was done by Odenkirk. He trained pretty extensively for this with some of the people that worked with uh, Keanu Reeves and such. Uh, so yeah, that's it was quite the uh, quite the commitment to this to this film when he when he's he took gonna it be on. sore. Wouldn't you be sore at that? You know, being his I age. Think, and, I think you'd be think sore so. doing those stunts at any age, Scott. Yeah. yeah. Oof. Ouch. I'm sore just I'm, looking at him. No, I know. Just like sitting in this chair doing this podcast, I'm like, ugh, I don't feel very great. I don't feel <laughs> yeah. good. Is that my yeah. sharing too much? Yeah, I am. <laughs> probably i'm in constant um, i'm in constant uh you know kind of a pain level is kind of constant with it I go, go ahead 
Yes. Oh, oh no, I had, I had nothing to add to that. Uh, well, let's just talk about your pain, Scott. Let's, yeah, okay. uh, just, let's a, just, a, just at least a dull ache all day. That sometimes <laughs> intensifies. Uh, actually, we, you we... know, that's that segue to like the one other thing I want to talk about, which is these films' attitude toward middle age, which is, uh, uh, I think, one views it as a time of more possibility for renewal and uh, second acts than the other. <laughs> am I mm-hmm. Am I correct in that? Yes, but also there there are different points of middle age too, right? True. I mean, that's true. you know, he's still uh, Bob Odenkirk's character is still what, Hutch. Like he should call him Hutch. Uh, yeah. He is still a father of reasonably young children. I mean, he's probably supposed to be in his maybe mid forties in this movie. You think? Fifties, fifties, uh, maybe. You think fifties? Well, I think I he started late. I think it's heavily yeah. implied that he started late. You know, he had a a thriving career as a contract uh, murderer for the government, uh, okay. and he came to the idea that he wanted uh, a family late in life. I, I but, also started. I also started fatherhood late, but not not for those reasons. Wait, wait really? <laughs> but, but, not a contract killer, or not not a highly sought after uh, eh, government operative. Sounds like something you want us to believe. But Wilson's old, though. Wilson's an older man. Sure. He's, you know, he's on the he's on the back end of middle age. He's edging into uh, elderly status. And uh, those are just two different places in one's life and d- different perspectives. I, they, they don't seem to have a lot in common. There seems to be enough of a dis- distance in age between these two characters to where their attitudes about the future are way are much, much different. Because I think, I think there is obviously a future that Hutch can visualize in which he's safely back at home with his family, that they're all safe and that they can move forward in their lives and they can have, you know, graduations and weddings and all the things that you look forward to as a, as a parent and as a family person. Um, but all of that is gone for Wilson. Wilson doesn't have a family anymore. He's lost his daughter. His life has been, has been frittered away in criminality and in, and in prison in this act of revenge that he has taken on this journey that he's gone on um, feels so much more like an ending than a beginning. Yeah. I, I think that what Hutch is going through is a pretty classic midlife crisis and it's a delayed midlife crisis in the same way he's a, a delayed husband, and a, a delayed father, but it's still a pretty classic. What have I become? What am I doing with my life? I need excitement. I need to prove that I'm still be, like as, as virile and manly as I ever was kind of uh, mentality thing. Whereas I think with Wilson, it's much more, as Scott says, kind of a winding down. It feels more like wrapping up loose ends late in life. And I think the different ways that they approach violence, with one of them embracing it eagerly and the other one seemingly just thinking of it as a, a necessary a necessary part of life and a necessary thing to apply to the problem in front of him is very telling about how they're both approaching the problems in their lives you know, one as an issue of middle age and one is something that has really nothing to do with age. Well, I feel like we're possibly at the end of, of our, the life of this podcast, or at least this episode of the podcast. So oh, thank God. <laughs> Don't cancel us, Keith, please. No, 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 no. We're, 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 we're keep we'll going. come after you. Uh, we are but, contract killers. <laughs> well, with this segment, at least, I, I think we're, I think we're done. Uh, we should say that Lyme is currently rentable on most major streaming services, uh, somewhat frustratingly, it's not out on Blu-ray, which means if you want to see an amazing commentary track, you have to dig up the old DVD version. Uh, nobody is currently in theaters, and we suspect we'll be on VOD services soon. Uh, we'll be right back 
after a short break with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the world has been good for you? So, I was just sitting on my couch on, uh, I think it was Saturday night, you know, vibing as I am, chilling, whatever, as I do. Is that, is that, uh, is that a medical condition, vibing? <laughs> No, it's because Scott is not a person. I tried tried desperately to keep up with what people say. Anyway, uh, so I I thought, like, I I deliberately said, you know what? I'm going to find something to watch on Paramount Plus. (laughs) That's what I'm going to do. That's my goal for tonight. I'm going to just go in and I'm going to browse Paramount Plus and I'm going to find something cool to watch if it exists. And so I, and so as I was going through the comedy section and flipping through the comedy central roasts of which they have about a dozen, I landed on a movie called the nasty girl, which was a film that Miramax released. They picked up and released in 1990 and a film I really loved at the time was incredibly excited to see just pop up the, on, on the service because you know, it's it was one of those moments of like, when you're going, th- you're at a department store and you're flipping through used records or something, and you find some abs- some like <laughs> rarity. It's like it's like they don't know what they have. It was like the the, the Paramount Plus version of they don't know what they have. Uh, they also have Sonatine, by the way, the, the, which is my favorite Takeshi Kitano film. Also a film that that Miramax picked up and didn't know what to do with. But this one is a film by a director named Michael Verhoeven. It's a German film, and it's about this this young woman who is in this small town in germany and she wins an essay contest which will remind you a lot of the the, the simpsons episode uh, where where lisa wins the essay contest and then does some make some some discoveries but she wins this essay contest and she starts to dig into the history of the town particularly its connection to the nazis and in in some of the older people in town who have been able to successfully scrub that part of their past away and and so it is extremely provocative in that sense in the way in the sense of just how history gets forgotten and erased and and, and buried even when it's right there out in the open but it's also a film of, of great style it uses a lot of interesting like interests of black and white of, of these kind of static backdrops it's got a really terrific irreverent lead performance i mean it's really a comedy more than anything and uh i just think it's an exciting surprising piece of work and it really resonated with me thinking about the politics of it about and about just the fascist impulse in society and how it's it is something that i think we need to understand as always being present but its status is either active or dormant you know and she's coming across She's living at a time where where the where the fascist impulse is dormant and suppressed, but the 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 people who uh, were fascists in World War II are alive and you know sort of hypocritically operating in society. And uh, I don't know. I thought that was a very strong idea. It really resonated with me a lot today. And I don't know if a lot of people have seen it. So I strongly recommend if you have paramount plus or if you have uh access to it then i I would strongly recommend seeing the nasty girl have you all seen it nasty girl no i haven't i know it only by reputation don't mean a thing scott i should uh it's awesome 
It's really good. It's a it's a real treat. Keith, what about you? So I've been holding out a connection between these two films. Uh, I've, I've been sneakily um, re- refraining from mentioning the the very strong connection between these films, or well, sort of strong anyway. Uh, Barry Newman, the star of Vanishing Point, is in The Limey. Uh, he's most famous for for that film, uh, in which he drives a white Dodge Challenger. I believe it's a 1970 Dodge Challenger. And if you'll recall from nobody, there is a 1970 white Dodge Challenger in that. That, that Hutch uh, steals from his neighbor and drives around. I think maybe it's a 72 or something, but it's essentially the same car. So it seems like a good opportunity to recommend. If you haven't seen the film Vanishing Point, go see the film Vanishing Point, starring Barry Newman, directed by Richard Serafian. It is the 1971 uh, uh, film in which Barry Newman plays a driver named Kowalski, just Kowalski, who has to deliver said Dodge Challenger from Denver uh, to San Francisco and it turns into a cross-country race in which, you know, uh, kind of like the Limey, uh, because we, we don't know that much about why who he is or why he's doing it. It, it kind of takes on other qualities, uh, sort of, sort of, uh, sort of, sort of an existential uh, journey as well. His co-star is Cleveland Little of uh, Blazing Saddles fame as Super Soul, a DJ who kind of becomes the the uh, voice cheering him on. Uh, there is a uh, scene with some uh, gay hitchhikers that is uh, not aged all that well, uh, as uh, as as the saying goes. So you know, going to that be with that uh, with that warning. Uh, but it is a, a remarkable film. I, I think anyone who hasn't seen it would enjoy it. If you have seen it, uh, check it out again. Uh, that is uh, Vanishing Point from 1971. Yeah, I, I would completely uh, uh, endorse Vanishing Point as well, and and I think if you are also, if you also enjoy the Tarantino half of Grindhouse, Vanishing Point is pretty much the prime primary reference point in that film. No, well, yeah, this is the Dodge Challengers in that as as well, and also, you know, it occurs to me with the Limey, you have Peter Fonda from Easy Rider. You had uh, you had Barry Newman from Vanishing Point. If they just put James Taylor in, you'd have the whole trilogy of, of, of late sixties, early seventies road movies uh, for Tulane Blacktop. But uh, but I guess I guess I guess Steven Soderbergh didn't it didn't occur to him. And how and how do they all connect to Kevin Bacon, Keith? Please, uh, they definitely connect somehow. I, I couldn't necessarily uh, okay. tell you how. Though. Tasha, do you have a connection to Kevin Bacon with your with your choice? Not with my choice, though. I did see a TikTok video of him the other day uh, singing country and western songs to a bunch of llamas, and I've been trying to figure out if those llamas are in any movies that we could use to uh, narrow Ooh. the the Bacon numbers. <laughs> I always need help in that game. <laughs> well, now you you can have a lot more llama help than you were ever expecting. I have not been sitting around uh, bored with Paramount Plus, but I was sitting around with a a free code to watch a movie on the Alamo Draft House on Demand site that was burning a bit of a hole in my pocket, and so I I went over there to uh, to see what they had, and uh, Alamo Draft House on Demand. An awful lot like uh, kind of the the repertory at Alamo Drafthouse. It's kind of same, very cultish library of films, same kind of sort of curational uh, ideas about like the, the, the Wild West of early independent and genre and exploitation cinema. There's a lot of fun stuff there and uh, a lot of new fun exploitation and and cult and genre cinema. But the thing that uh, we ended up watching was actually George Romero's 1973 film, The Crazies, which is a movie about a (laughs) a virus, a rapidly spreading virus that overtakes a community, uh, which cannot seem to master the the art of social distancing, especially once the government (laughs) grabs everybody in town and shoves them all into a, uh, a high school together. 
I would not say that this is a good movie necessarily, but it is, boy, it's fun. And it's certainly a movie that shows Romero's obsessions. So the rapidly spreading virus is actually a government bioweapon spread from a plane that crashed. So the the government's trying to shut everything down um, and contain both the virus and the story at the same time. And the black colonel, uh, played by Lloyd Holler, who is ends up in charge of the whole mess, is maybe the one reasonable person in the whole shindig. You have a group of people running around with guns because it's a uh, a rural town and they're trying to kind of preserve their freedoms. You've got people who are actually in- infected by the virus who are running around being all crazy, like the title says. And you have a, a ton of government people in white suits, which I think he probably chose because they show squib blood splatters really, really well. There's, there's a lot of squib work in this movie. A lot of gun gunfights, a lot of uh, fighting back against the man in the form of uh, we're from the government. We're here to help. And just like the anti-authoritarian vibe of this movie, the the feeling of the government is lying to you and trying to control you. And even when it's doing things in your best interest, it's doing them the wrong way is really strong and feels like a carryover from Night of the Living Dead. The theme of uh, the the only prominent black person in the entire story being the one reasonable person who's trying to do his best and just getting screwed from every angle also seems very familiar from uh, Night of the Living Dead. The exploitation angle of a mob of uh, crazed violent people surging in the town seems very familiar from Night of the Living Dead. So while it's going in a whole bunch of different directions that that don't always add up and uh, the the acting is very, very uh, in the early 70s, I actually had a lot of fun with the crazies. I, I just I thought it was an interesting artifact of its time. Scott is nodding heavily over here. No, I agree. I I, 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 I like it a lot. I mean, what do you think, Keith? You're, you're, you're yeah, like, no, you like I, the crazies I, a lot. I'm it's a fan. Not a, the remake's not terrible either. Eh, it's okay. Uh, yeah. I, I'm a fan of, of the crazies. Uh, yeah, it, it is quite rough around the edges in a way even like Night of the Living Dead isn't. Uh, but uh, you know, he it's a, it's a powerful film, and and I think he became a little more after Night of the Living Dead. I think he became a little more aware of what he could do, um, what political statements he could make. And I know some people, I know Jason Zinnemann's uh, great book uh, Shock Value um, about seventies horror films. Uh, his his complaint is Romero gets a little too aware of uh, politics uh, after a certain point. But I I, I don't really I, it's not really a problem for me and i, I think this is a a good example of that of that working uh, most of the time it's a pandemic right it's a pandemic again with the pandemic always talking about <laughs> I'm, the yeah, I'm, i've i've been red pilled or blue pill which is the pill that i'm take to take the you and your q drops all the time it's, it's no <laughs> right. good and um, you guys i enjoyed the crazies stop uh stop trying to crazy up my uh, experience with the crazies <laughs> that's it for this edition of the next picture show our next pairing will drop on april 27th and may 4th scott what do we have on tap in emma Silligman's new comedy shiva baby Rachel Sanat stars as Danielle, a college student who attends the Shiva for a family friend, but finds herself at the center of attention. Among the potential landmines of the event are her parents, who are tired of paying her bills, her ex-girlfriend, and the sugar daddy who has funded her lifestyle. Danielle's massively uncomfortable situation 
reminding us of Anne Hathaway and Jonathan Demme's 2008 drama, Rachel Getting Married. Rosemary DeWitt's Rachel may be the one getting married, but all eyes are on Hathaway as her sister Kim, who is fresh from her latest stint in rehab and a serious threat to ruin the wedding. Shiva Baby and Rachel Getting Married are a fascinating contrast in religious and cultural tradition, with one film set among Jewish mourners and the other at an unconventional family wedding. But on next week's episodes, we'll sink into the awkward tension that comes from a screwed-up young person being the unintended life of the party. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of the Limey, Nobody, anything else somewhere that you'd like to talk about. Uh, we want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find my work there. And I am on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Scott? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at the New York Times, uh, Guardian, uh, Vulture, uh, The Ringer, and, and other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog, Keith. Uh, I'm a freelance writer. You can find me on Twitter at kfips 3000 where I, I post what I write. I'm mostly these days writing for like you know, your, your GQ, uh, TV Guide, uh, sometimes The Ringer, uh, Vulture. You know, I'm, I'm all over the place these days. Our absentee co-host, uh, Jenna Yukoski, is the TV editor at Vulture. You can find her uh, sometimes on Twitter at, at Genevieve Kosky. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. And please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing the podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. I can't be right for somebody else if I'm not right for me. I've gotta be me. I've gotta be me. Daring to try.